Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen and I've never read any of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. My name is Joanna Robinson and I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just tuning in to A Cast of Kings for the first time, you should know that we will spoil everything through this week's episode of Game of Thrones, but nothing from future week's episodes, and that includes anything on the next time on preview that HBO shows. So nothing from future books, nothing from future weeks uh, of the TV show. This week we're going to be spoiling everything through Season 4, Episode 5 of Game of Thrones, First of His Name. Find more of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. That's acastofkings at gmail.com. That's also where you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So Facebook.com slash cast of Kings and at a cast of Kings. Jonah Robinson, what we like to do at the beginning of every episode is uh, talk about emails. Emails people write into a cast of Kings at gmail.com. Uh, got in a few emails. We also like to correct mistakes that we made uh, in the last week. And so uh, let's let's dive into some of these emails. Uh, this first email comes in from Cameron. From Cornwall in the United Kingdom, uh, in the last episode, quote, in relation to the slave population of Marine, Dave expressed an opinion that the enslaved must be stupid, as they outnumbered the masters by three to one. On the surface, this is a fair comment, but many slave-based economies in the ancient world, such as Rome, Athens, and Sparta, maintained far higher numbers of slaves proportionally, sometimes exceeding ten to one. Any whiff of insurrection and the slaves were brutally put down. There were even institutions such as the Spartan Cryptia, whose sole purpose was the suppression of the undertrodden masses by any means. Hope this gives a little more possible insight into the show and that you might uh, use it next week. In any case, eagerly await your next installment. Um, thanks for that, Cameron. Uh, good point about the beef I had uh, with... Apparently, I know nothing about slave economies. That's kind of what the lesson I'm learning as we go through the uh, cast of kings. Uh, although Jonah Robinson, you know, this this does bring up a broader issue that I've been seeing over and over again, which is that like people invoking real world analogs to kind of uh, excuse or justify some of the elements of the show, right? Like, uh, for example, people saying like, "Oh, well, we think it's rape or we think it's blah," but back back in medieval ages, that kind of behavior was normal or something like that. Uh, and I think for the most part, that's a you know convincing argument. But this is not Earth in so like as far as I understand, this is not meant to be uh, Earth, right? I mean, it's, it's modeled after um, you know certain parts of the medieval kingdoms, but like this is not meant to be Earth, right? I mean, what what are your thoughts on people bringing up h- how we view? rape in the modern era and and back in medieval ages as like a kind of like defense like like drawing that contrast as a defense of how the show does certain things yeah i think i mean drawing it as the only defense i think it is worth bringing up that oftentimes we will apply our modern sensibilities quote unquote to a quasi medieval setting um if that's the term you want to use um, and, you know, it makes sense for us as modern viewers to apply modern sensibilities to that, but it also makes sense to understand the gender and sexual politics of the time. That's usually when that thing gets invoked is around gender and sexual politics. So Correct. Um, and, yeah. And, and so I guess, I mean, I guess, I, I, go ahead. Well, I just I, – I don't love it as like a writing something off without – 
let's not even think about it. Let's just write it off. Right. Which is, but, which is often how it's used when people have brought up that defense. But yeah. Right. But, but as a, a discussion point, I think it's important. Right. Of course, context. Right. Yeah. That maybe in this other, in this alternate universe or in this alternate dimension where dragons exist and there is magic and so on, uh, they progressed very much in the same way as the human race progressed. Right. That's why they also have the same units of time. And apparently they use the English system of, of weight, as we found out in this episode. Oh, we, um, did. we did, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so there are obviously, it's obviously me- meant to be modeled. But it is, it is um, you know, it's, it's a fictional universe. And, uh, uh, and also, like, it exists in the world today as a work of art, you know, like in our modern age. And so it's worth... Um, looking at it through that lens as well. But yes, good, good context to have. But I agree with you, Joanna. It should not be the, uh, the trump card when it comes to talking about issues on the show. Exactly, yeah. Uh, what else? What else? Uh, do, do I want to read Keith's email? Keith of Madison, Wisconsin, writes in, quote, just wanted to chime in that I was a little put off by Grey Worm and the one girl having a budding romance because of what kind of felt like Hey, they're the same color. Of course they should like each other. And Danny kind of looking on approvingly with the brown people getting together. Aw. I felt like that one episode of South Park where Cartman was trying to get the only two black children together because they were, too, because they were both black. Anyway, end quote. I just thought that was a funny email, Joanna. No, it was a funny email, but I also liked... Was it the same email? Maybe a different one that they pointed out that um, Grey Worm as a character is really our only... Um, yeah, he says, uh, the same email, he says, the first and only attractive male of color on the show, and he has no penis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I think that's worth noting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just, we're not going to, you know. just gender and sexual politics. Presented yeah. with no comment. There you go. You yeah. draw whatever conclusion you want from that. Yeah. Uh, what else? We got an email from, uh, okay, so about book smugness. So I, I, first of all. I actually went back to last week's episode, Joanna Robinson. I don't know if you re-listened to the episode, but I actually went back and edited out some of my comments on book reader smugness because I felt I was coming off as too uh, disparaging of book readers. But even like even the remarks I made were apparently enough to inflame some listeners. Um, Scott from Colorado Springs writes in, we all come to the show from a different perspective, whether we read the books or didn't read them. Neither is better than the other, just a personal choice that we've made. I understand that there are many people who've read the books and who choose to be utter jerks about it and ruin the experience for everyone else, yourself included. But that doesn't excuse you from lumping everyone into a group and cheering when their smugness can be destroyed. It's condescending and you're better than that. I don't enjoy being vilified for having read the books. I wouldn't mock you for not having read them, though unfortunately there are those who have and will continue to do so. I think that most of this, most, much of this comes from fantasy readers as a whole being a little on the outside of society, and now that one of the hallmarks of the genre is being adapted for television, some people feel like they've been marginalized, uh, have information that everyone else who hasn't read their beloved series does not. And instead of being excited that someone gets to experience something they love, they lord it over them. Most book readers aren't like this, but the people who are are loud and obnoxious and they've ruined that image for the rest of us. So while I understand your frustration, please don't lump us all into the smug asshole reader group. Uh, and I am really happy that there are myriads of people getting to experience a story who otherwise never would have. I also hope that they don't stop there but use this as a gateway into genre fiction and find out what a diverse and fun genre it is to read and watch. End quote. That email comes in from Scott from Colorado Springs. So... Uh, I thought that was a nice email, Joanna Robinson. 
What did you I think? I agree. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I got. I don't know if you saw, but yesterday, um, someone <laughs> someone responded to a Game of Thrones article I wrote just to the headline, obviously, and didn't click through to read the article and told me, like, go read those books. Go read the books, you imbecile. And it's like, (laughs) you know, doubly frustrating because I have read the books, but also like, don't, don't call people imbeciles just because they haven't read a fantasy series. I mean, that's (laughs) that's such a weird standard to put. So yeah, I mean, I, I, even I have experienced the asshole book readers who are out there. Um, the thing is, Jonah Robinson has totally spoiled me on book readers because she's such an exemplary uh, <laughs> book reader who, like, doesn't you know doesn't hint at things uh, teasingly and doesn't you know uh, spoil anything. Uh, and so I guess it's just difficult when I encounter uh, people who are not like that. But it, Scott makes a good point that. I shouldn't lump everyone in together. It's just you can imagine that, uh, like, when I do receive uh, negative feedback, a lot of times it is from book readers, and so uh, so that so in my mind, I have like negative associations generally with book readers. But maybe we can come up with like a different classification that's not just book readers, but like you know, like the bad Breaking Bad fan, like the bad book reader, or something the bad like book that. reader, right? And the yeah. good book reader, the unsung good book reader who doesn't feel the need to brag about the fact that they've read the books, who always comments on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash the cast of kings and at slash film.com without revealing any spoilers. There are, I know you're out there. I can I, think of 10 of them by name right now. They're I great. appreciate the reminder. So yeah. I have been sufficiently chastened. Uh, so apologies if book readers felt like I was lumping them all in together. Uh, just, you know, as you guys know, there are a lot of asshole book readers. That's why it's a thing that Joanna can refer to and everyone knows what she's talking about. Uh, so anyway, just wanted to, uh, to bring that up and, and say apologies for that. And thank you for the reminder. Let's move on, Joanna Robinson. Uh, let's get to this week's episode. Uh, so season four, episode five of, uh, Game of Thrones and... Um, we're halfway through. We're halfway through. Oh, actually, you had a tweet you wanted to bring up, did you not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So we are we are five episodes into this season of Game of Thrones, and so what are your thoughts? Uh, we we got a tweet that you thought was rather thought provoking. Yeah. Um. The the user's name is Evercastro. That's at Evercastro ninety two. Um. And he had two good tweets for our a cast of kings account. So if you have, you know, short brief questions, you can always send them to our Twitter account at a cast of kings. Um. His first was just wanting us to discuss Michelle McLaren, which we'll have plenty of opportunity to do, and whether or not we think that she, like Alan Taylor, who is also a Game of Thrones director, can break out into feature films. Um, and then his other question was, you know, given that we're halfway through the season, who is our mid-season MVP, a.k.a. who's shaping up to be the season's Theon from the second season or Jamie from last season? Um, and I was wondering, Dave, if you had a response for that. I think that based on, I don't know, based on this fifth episode, um, I would say Arya is who I'm going to go with. And so because, what are you, how are you defining MVP for yourself? Because I think. I guess the person whose arc I am most interested in. Okay. Right. And and who I feel like has been the most interesting places. Uh, that The arc, not the, the character mm-hmm. herself. Uh, and. I think I say Arya because basically based on season four, episode five, watching it with Danny, seems like she's ba- she's going to be sidelined 
from the main plot for a while. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but that's my, the pr- impression I get. We've been wanting to see Danny kind of get back to King's Landing, but she's, uh, uh, my conclusion is she's saying, I'm going to stick around. So uh, she was also a strong contender as well. But Arya, I think her descent into, uh, shall we say, sociopathy uh, is pretty interesting to me. And, and her getting her revenge is satisfying. And so it'll, it'll, be, it'll be kind of interesting to see how it plays out. So that's my thoughts. How about you? Um, I had two candidates. Um, if we're talking about favorite character, which doesn't really fall under, if we're talking about Theon, like most compelling arc, you know, Theon was never a favorite of ours. There's a compelling arc, but favorite, obviously Oberyn Martell. I think that's an amazing character that has come out strong right out the gate. Um, in terms of, um, compelling arc. I guess I have to say Cersei after this episode. Mm. Um, mm. Cersei Lannister and what's going on with her this season is very interesting to me. So, All right. Well, let's talk about it. So the episode begins with uh, Tommen being crowned. And it's it takes place in the, what is that hallway called? The throne room? The throne room, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I, I feel like it's been a while since we've seen that room, or at least I don't recall seeing it as often this season as in seasons past. And it looks re- very different with everyone uh, all lined up there and stuff. Right. So it uh, looks fantastic. And they, they, she kind of exchanges his glance with... Uh, Marjorie kind of exchanges his glass with, uh, glance with Tommen and they have this dialogue together. Uh, so what did you make of this conversation between Cersei and Marjorie? Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that I really loved the way that everyone seemed actually genuinely happy that Tommen was king. I'm not even talking about the people with dialogue. I'm talking about like whatever direction they gave the crowd in the throne room. They were like, okay, everyone seemed actually pleased with what's happening because the cheers as opposed to Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding say the cheers seemed very genuine um and then Marjorie and Cersei that's a that that was an interesting conversation it's a departure Cersei's attitude is not only a departure from the books but a departure from what we've seen from her in the show in terms of her attitude towards Marjorie even last episode a decent boy he always has been who was the last decent king I wonder he could be the first man who sits on that throne in 50 years to actually deserve it. It would be some consolation, wouldn't it? For all the horror that put him there. He will need help. If he's going to rule well. He has you. A mother is not enough. Still interested in being queen, I take it. <laughs> After all that's happened. Sounds strange, I know, but I am. Um, I haven't even given any thought to it. What comes next? It would be a great honor, of course. But I will have to speak to my father about it. So I'm not really sure I understand or, or track what's going on there with that attitude shift. How do you, how did you feel about I it? I agree. Uh, it is quite a turnaround. And yeah. what was weird to me was that there was a scene that they could have placed before the scene that would have completely kind of helped to explain it. Uh, I'm referring to the scene with the Iron Bank, take a drink, uh, <laughs> where, you, you know, where uh, Tywin communicates, hey, we are really up the river without a paddle, you know, we're up the creek without a paddle here. We need to buddy up with these Tyrells. 
And then for Cersei to, after that, kind of have the conversation with Marjorie, I felt like would have made a lot more sense to me. Yeah, you know you're I mean? right. You're right. Absolutely. Um, so I don't know if that was like an editing decision or whatever, but, but Cersei's kind of kindness to Marjorie comes out of nowhere yeah. in this scene. Um, so I guess we're to presume that, uh, that Tywin and Cersei or someone told Cersei how important it was that this partnership continue. Again, it just makes no sense that that scene was after the, you know what I mean? Like, I just assume that Tywin had told Cersei, hey, you got to buddy up with these guys. Uh, like, that's kind of what I assume. And then later on, there was a scene where that actually kind of happened. So Yeah, no, that makes total sense to yeah. me. I hadn't thought of it that way. But I guess, having, wondering... I guess beginning it with the coronation is a really effective way to start it. Maybe they didn't want to let go of that. It was right? a dramatic way to start yeah. the episode. Um, maybe also let's not rule out that Cersei has something else up her sleeve. Who knows? You know, perhaps, like, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I love Marjorie's like, whoa, I didn't even uh, consider this cold political <laughs> calculation. It's, I know. She's like, I just hadn't even thought of it. I didn't, didn't even occur to me. Oh, no. Even though we've, we've seen them talking about that exact same thing. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Uh, she she's is, great. she is amazing. So, yeah. uh, so anyway, they, she's like, I just got to talk to my dad about it. What did you think of that? Like focus pull into her dad, by the way. I almost felt, I almost feel like they're trying to make Marjorie's dad out to kind of be a bit buffoonish. I don't know if that's just. Well, it's interesting. We did. We got an email. I wasn't going to read it too much because it seemed a little book spoilery to me. But we got an email that that sort of commented on Mace Tyrell, her father, that character being sidelined a lot in the show. You know, and the show just doesn't have room to to delve into every single character, so characters get condensed. So her grandmother gets all of the, I think, the good family stuff, and her father has been sort of sidelined. Um, who knows if that'll continue? If that, if the show, if that shot is trying to indicate that we'll see more of him, I don't know. But you know, it was it was interesting. I agree with you. Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, so as I alluded to earlier, there's this conversation with Danny and Sejora where. Turns out, when you sort of rip up a city and install a democratic government or whatever she did i i, I, I guess she put in like a council in uh, astapor or something along those lines it didn't take and uh considering she took most of the army with her uh she's finding that a lot of the places we've seen her sack in previous seasons and episodes uh are her work is being undone so she makes um okay first of all i'm gonna be on danny's pr team and say liberate <laughs> she liberated those cities no you're right she sacked them it's fine um <laughs> uh, yeah and you know what how, tomato tomato whatever you want to refer to that is cool <laughs> with me uh and i don't know i thought i i liked her scene here where she kind of say, is saying uh she makes a good point that she can't possibly expect to uh, rule the seven kingdoms if she can't even figure out how to re- like retain control of slave- these cities in Slaver's Bay. I guess there's this whole bay where there's tons of slaves and it's called Slaver's Bay. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> it's very subtly named. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what did you make of this scene, Jonna? Well, this is interesting and this is why I was called a smug book reader earlier today by someone. Um <laughs> This goes back to what I couldn't talk about in in regards to your reaction to Misa at the end of last season. I mean, you and I both talked about the imagery that you see in Misa and this sort of white savior 
um, complex. What I was trying to allude to when we recorded that podcast without actually talking about it is that I don't think the show is meant for you to see Danny's sack or liberation of these cities as wholly positive things. They're naive. They're rash. These cities fall back into slavery once she's gone. So I, I think, you know, it's easy. I, I can completely understand why a show watcher would watch that and say, oh, I'm supposed to think that Danny is this great hero, this great liberator of slaves. Well, that's how Danny sees herself. But, uh, you know, as we see in this episode, it's a lot harder to accomplish. You know, she's very naive and thinks that, that if she can just launch some barrels full of shackles over a wall, like she can liberate this entire area. Does that make sense? It, so makes, I, I, it makes complete sense. I guess I, I tried to kind of broach this issue in my way last season, right, when uh-huh. we talked about this. I'm, I think I did either a poor job of it or uh, I – like the, what I was saying came out ridiculously politically incorrect. Uh, whatever the case, that was a concern that I had. That like, is this really the right thing? She's doing all this stuff unilaterally without considering. Uh, like when you upset the world order, there right. is going to be collateral damage. Is right. kind of like, and, and I think there's this temptation to see it as oh, wholly positive. And yes, of course, slavery is horrible. Uh, it was horrible in our universe. It was. It, it is horrible in the you know Westeros universe or um, the game of the Essos, yeah. right? The, the Game of Thrones universe. Uh, we see the hor- like the horrific results of it and the atrocities that are perpetrated because of slavery. Uh, but that being said, I mean, you know, we we have analogs in our real world when there's a ruthless dictator in some country and the U.S. goes in there and tries to fix it. Sometimes they end up making it worse. Right. And uh and it's not because we didn't have good intentions, it's just because uh p- things reach an equilibrium and when you uh when you kind of upset that equilibrium, it can create problems. And so and, but it's go- not just that that question of equilibrium, it's also this idea that Danny is thinking ideologically rather than practically. Practically, right. Yeah. And, and we're not – and again, so you have to give this caveat. I have to say we're not saying that it was bad to liberate the slaves. I want to say that. that. Nope. Uh, just that it caused problems that she perhaps uh, naively did not anticipate. Right? right. So I think – I really do think that what they show in Misa at the end, that really disturbing – I think it's meant to be disturbing. And for people who, mm, okay. you know, know – that this, the uh, the events of this season, that that city just slides right back into where it was after she leaves. I think for those people watching the episode, the scene takes on a different tone. But uh, but to go back to that book spoiler thing that we were talking about earlier, you can't explain that to someone who doesn't, you can't say like, well, just wait, it'll all go wrong. Because, I mean, that's a spoiler. So That being said, uh you know, I'm thinking, like, how could they have shown that, right? Right. Because uh, I am a little bit disappointed that you, you have references to all these terrible things happening at these places that she has taken over. And they don't show you any of that. But that would be fairly unprecedented uh, in the Game of Thrones TV show, I believe, right? To show something that a major character was not involved in. I feel like that's, that's pretty rare. Am I, am I I'd right have to. I'd have to think about that. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean the fact that we have to think about last it. week, but what'd you say? I mean, how are you defining major character? What do you mean by last? What What about last week? Well, Craster's Keep. Are we considering anyone who was in that extended yeah, sequence but, a major character? Yeah, it's a good point. Although Brand did arrive there, 
That's true. That's true. So, uh, and there was that scene where like the masters got. the, this this one of the masters in Marine got assaulted, but that's like as a direct result of Danny's actions. Yeah, I think the show. If I like the fact that we have to think hard about whether the show ever showed you something that a major character wasn't involved in, is a testament to the fact that it usually doesn't do that, right? And so, if they were to expand the world of the show too much. I think they're wise to not expand it too much. So it's you're kind of screwed either way, right? Like if you show it, if you don't show it, it's hard to make it real to the viewer. If you show it, it's like it's already challenging enough to keep track of all these threads and to show something that a major character is not even involved with. Mm-hmm. It would be uh, maybe a bridge too far for some viewers. So it right. is an interesting problem, and uh, there's no solution to it that I think is satisfying for everyone. So uh, just something that's interesting to reflect on. And I well, one more thing is that in this scene before we moved on is I wanted to ask you what you thought about Jorah and Danny's interaction here. Um, do you see it as like a sign of maturation that she's listening to him? How do you feel like you know? I just felt like they they made an especial point. The other you know, Barrison Selmy's talking, Dario's talking, but Danny's only she's looking at Jorah, she's cocking her eyebrow at him and waiting to hear his opinion. So like. And I feel like she hasn't really been listening to him right. very much, and so I'm wondering what you make of that change. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I'm mixed on it. You know, okay. like there's some things that I feel like, wow, that really paid off that that character moment really well. Uh, an example of that would be Podrick's and uh, Brienne scene from this episode, which I think like. Everything you know about Podrick, everything you know about Brienne, that is a completely realistic interaction, and it's really awesome the way it plays out, right? Right. Um, this I did not feel the same way about. I think that, yeah, Jorah has been a smart guy, and he's been giving a lot of advice, but like, I just feel like the Danny, Danny's relationship with these three men has been pretty underdeveloped. Like, I just don't feel like I've had enough. There, there's like a lot of mutual respect established in season one between mm-hmm. Jorah and Danny, and obviously Jorah is kind of in love with her. Um, but... Beyond that, I mean, and, and she does kind of give him a, a, a wink and a nod at the whole Karth debacle. Um, I guess they've laid, they laid, when I say I'm mixed, they did lay a lot of good groundwork for this relationship in seasons one and two. But I feel like injecting several other characters into the mix has kind of diluted yeah. the connection a little bit. Okay. So I, that's, I think it's a mixed bag for me. Gotcha. Uh, how about you? Um, yeah, well, I just thought it was interesting. I thought it was a really interesting scene. Um, some of the dialogue is pulled right out of the books. That whole, it's switched around a little bit, but that thing that she says right at the end about being a queen and ruling, um, that's actually part of her last chapter in the Storm of Swords book. book so it looks three. like we're going to be like uh, bopping along. into book four. I've heard there yeah. are scenes in book four that are already making it into this season. Yeah. With reckless abandon. Yeah. So. There's some still, there's still some Danny book three stuff left to do, but she's bopping along into book four, I think, or book five actually. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, it, it was a, it was a nice scene. It's nice to see characters you care about interact with each other and, and make consequential decisions. But, uh, yeah, the other dudes, uh, is it Barristan Selmy? Is that the other guy? Yes. And uh, Dario, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, it's hard to fully, it, that like in real life, that would be a pretty complex relationship. And because you only see Danny like once every couple of episodes, it's it's hard to fully convey that dynamic, in my opinion, to a satisfying degree. 
anyway, that is just my opinion. So, uh, well, is that is that true that we only see her every couple episodes, or is it true that like every time we see her of late, she's been like sacking a city? You know, <laughs> right. yeah, it's true. I mean, and that in season one when she was with you know the Dothraki horde, like she had more time in that character arc to forge relationships because she wasn't doing these big set piece uh, scenes that they keep expecting that we keep expecting from Danny. Yeah dragons and yeah i think that's a good point i mean i think like yeah she's been she's been on a tear recently with the sacking and you know (laughs) earlier on she kind of just had to figure things out she had to figure out what was going on with the thraki you know how to become a khaleesi how to eat hearts literally you know and and so on so um it, it was more of a like you you were in more of a situation where you she was almost an audience surrogate in season one Mm -hmm. right and that's I don't really feel like that's the case anymore, right? Right. So, yeah, uh, she's come a long way, but also uh, some of the things that she's done has kind of the way the show uh, treats her now is kind of uh, there's a barrier between you and and what she's going, what's going on in her mind, I guess. Right. Um, okay. What else do we got? Um, okay. So uh, there is uh, a scene. So Baelish arrives at uh, at the bloody gate with Sansa uh, gives her some good advice about covering her, her hair because it's, she has a memorable shade of, of hair, right? Right. Of red in her hair. And uh, <laughs> they arrive at Lysa Aaron's house where you see her son is still there. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, he's not breastfeeding it, uh, that we see. Right. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, that was truly a troubling sight, um, but like in in previous seasons. But like, I guess they decided not to. I don't know why they decided not to. <laughs> like, it would have been really disturbing if they showed it again this episode. And it's not like the show is above uh, showing us really disturbing scenes on screen. But for whatever reason, they decided you know not to do that. And uh, we get a really nice uh, glimpse of Baelish's and uh, Lysa's messed up relationship. Mm-hmm. What wife would trust you the way I've trusted you? When you gave me those drops and told me to pour them into John's wine, my husband's wine. When you told me to write a letter to Kat telling her it was a Lannister. So I have to say, Lysa Aaron, the introduction, the reintroduction of Lysa Aaron was my favorite part of this episode. We've already talked about problems in this scene, but Lysa Aaron is a great character to bring back in, so... Let me just say this. I am used to Game of Thrones giving us loads of exposition in dialogue scenes. But, but usually I'm, it's in a brothel, so you're distracted. Usually see people are having sex in the background, <laughs> so I'm cool with it. Uh, but no, usually I think they're, they're, they hide it well by having some kind of emotional arc happen during the scene. Do you know what I mean? Like... That was the time, you know, there was, there once was a time when, you know, I loved you and you, when you took over the blah, 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 but now I don't love you, you know, and, and so they give this exposition kind of glancingly, but then Lysa Aaron here just talking like, I don't think any human would ever talk about saying like that time I did this. And then she describes in brutal detail what it is, right? So the thing is. This ha- this is a necessary, very necessary exposition, and it happens in the book from Lysa. Um, but it happened. The context is different. 
and she's upset and she's flinging the words in anger. And I think if she were flinging the words in anger of like, look at all I've done for you, it would make more sense than versus her declaring her love. I love like between kisses, I murdered my husband for you. Right. So I agree. It, it, it felt kind of clunky, um, necessary exposition, but poorly executed. So, yeah. So let's talk that out. J Rob, like, Let's let's talk it out. So she, uh, a, a lot of people think that uh, her husband John Aaron was killed by the Lannisters, correct? Right. Uh, but she actually was in love with Baelish and asked, and Baelish and her somehow masterminded his death. Right. Now the death of John Aaron was a precipitating event in one of the Great Wars. Is that right? As well. That's what kicked off the whole series. He dies at the beginning of the series, and that's he was the hand of the king. And that's why Robert comes and asks Ned to be Hand of the King. And then Ned, in looking into why John Aaron was killed, discovers the whole bastard plot. And that's what gets Ned in trouble. And that's what kicks off the War of the Five Kings, really. So, Right, because he basically – Ned learned that Aaron's death was not of natural causes, basically. Right, right. right. Uh, and but the the show starts when, when both Kat and Ned are still at Winterfell. Kat gets a letter from Lysa saying – you know the Lannisters are behind this. I see. Careful. And so that's what that's what Lysa was saying saying before Baelish cut her off by making out with her. Right. Saying, that I he wrote that. Told her to yeah. write that letter. Right. And plant that suspicion in Ned's head. So, do you think that the death of Ned was always part of this grand plan? Like, or I guess is that a spoiler for you to reveal if it is or not? I guess. I mean, it's not a spoiler. I mean, I think everyone already knows that that Baelish. Very much help orchestrate Ned's death. Right, he betrayed Ned in the first season. Like that was true. But to see how deep the roots of his scheme go in this episode is pretty pretty shocking. And I mean, this is what I was you know alluding to last week when you said, oh, he didn't really ma- mastermind Joffrey's death. Lady Olena did, and then you know we sort of talked around to them being in cahoots together rather than Olena being the mastermind. And I think. From what we've seen of Baelish here, even if Elena thinks the Joffrey's death was her idea, it was probably Baelish's idea. You know, that's the kind of character he is. So he's playing the long game, like yes. four-year-long game. Yes. <laughs> yes. And all for what exactly? Like, I don't think we're really sure what his end is, right? Well, I don't... well what Sansa asked him last week, right, what do you want? And he said everything. So there's your answer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Chaos, I mean, is, I think chaos the, is a ladder. I chaos guess. is a ladder, and you know, it's all—it's a lot of it is tied up in his feelings for Catelyn Stark, and also the fact that Baelish came from nothing. He was, you know, a, a lord, but a lord of a really crappy piece of land, and the fact that he is now the Lord of Harrenhal and the Lord of the Vale—both of those—is huge, huge leaps and bounds that he's made. Um, in just a couple seasons, yeah. so so he is well on his way to whatever it is, whatever it is he's trying to do, right? Uh, so Sansa arrives, and she's initially very thrilled to be away from you know uh, King's Landing. But I just had this feeling in the pit of my stomach, Jonah Robinson, that she would actually miss having Tyrion around. <laughs> Uh, Out of the frying pan into another frying pan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So they have this really messed up conversation 
uh, Sansa and Lysa. Well, well, firstly, actually, before we move on from the previous scene with Lysa and Baelish, was I the only person that read it that, like, Baelish was trying to delay this marriage of theirs? Yeah, he was. Yeah. He, and, and then is it, like, my, the way I read the scene is that she actually had the septum right there to marry them? Oh, right? waiting. Yeah, ready I and see. waiting. So his plan was foiled to delay marrying her. Yeah. Uh, but apparently she had a good time that That's- night. Yeah, and that's directly out of the books. I love that. <laughs> like, George R. R. Martin wrote that shit out in the books oh. of Lysa really enjoying her wedding night. Um, and I wanted to make mention here that um, I wrote a longer piece about it on VanityFair.com today, but in this scene, Sansa is actually supposed to be almost raped herself by, a, you know, a hanger-on of Lysa's. And they didn't do that and you know so I, I just think that that's worth you know if we're gonna say that Weiss and I don't want to get into it too much I really don't but if we're gonna say that Weiss and Benioff are putting rape in where there is no rape we should also mention when they, when they keep rape out when there might be rape you know right. yep. it's not it's not you know doesn't go all the way to rape in the book but once again shades of rape so anyway we should move on from that what is Lysa's son's name do you recall Robin. Robin. So, uh, anyway, Lysa has this psychotic conversation with, uh, with Sansa, which I think was really uh, well done because we've already kind of – we already know that Lysa's kind of not right in the head for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, and she, uh, in, she sort of refers to how Baelish is in love with Catelyn. And that's cool because we know that Baelish always felt spurned by Catelyn, and that kind of is what led him to betray Ned, right? Or it's part of the reason that led him to betray Ned, right? Spurned by, but also still in love with, I think. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's all character groundwork that has been laid already. So for her to kind of uh, freak out at Sansa, I thought that was really like a good payoff for what that would be. Yeah, um, and I think we also saw that... Um in season one, the interaction between Kat and Lysa and how tense it was as right. even, you know, as sisters. Um, and because, I want to, because right. Like there's this love triangle. basically, Right. Right. Yeah. right. Um, and I wanted to say that I was looking in this episode for more of Michelle McLaren's fingerprints on scenes. And I think this was the most beautiful scene, the scene between Lysa and Sansa as, as scary as it got. You know, just the candlelit table and all the platters and, you know, Sansa sort of chowing down and them talking. It was just really beautiful. And you're lulled into this sense of, oh, Sansa's safe and she's talking about her mom and it's so nice. And then, you know, stuff goes south. So It's also during the scene when Sansa learns that she's going mar- to have to marry Lysa's son, or at least that's what Lysa wants. Uh, we're meant to think this is like, a horrible thing, right? I, I, th- we we know a couple things about Lysa's son that she was really he was really eager for Tyrion to get killed in uh, season one, I think, right? Yeah. And he was breastfeeding till and possibly still is until a very old age, right? Uh, and those are his only characteristics. Uh, so that that's one thing that I'm like, okay, I can easily imagine this being uh, a terrible match, but. I, I guess my question to you is, is that enough for us to think, like, wow, this is horrible? Like, Sansa should try to get out of this at all costs? 
Well, he's also a small child and her first cousin, so those factors are also there. Yeah, that's true. And she's being, once again, pushed into being a pawn in a marriage for power gain, so... Right. They, I mean, what's clear in the books, I guess, which is not clear here, is that she sort of feels like in that moment she's not valued for being flesh and blood or special or protected. She's valued because she is the heir, de facto heir of Winterfell. And if Tyrion is executed and she's a widow, then her claim to Winterfell would pass to her children that she would have by Robin, right? So, you know, because people don't know about Bran and Rickon being alive or Arya for that matter, you know, Sansa is an extremely precious political gift. And um, and so she feels, you know, above and beyond the fact that he's a child, he's kind of creepy, he's her first cousin, beyond the fact that Lysa has shown herself to be really scary and crazy, once again, Sansa's like, oh, I see, I'm being shuffled about because of my you know, the land that I'm entitled to. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, well, John Robinson, let's, uh, let's, let's take a little break here and let's talk about the people that sponsored uh, our episode this week. We're going to give a big shout out to the people at Mike B and Alex G.com. That's Mike B and Alex G.com. Uh, they are a pair of budding filmmakers, and they debuted a short film called Do You Believe in the Devil? Uh, and it was uh, featured at shortoftheweek.com, which is actually uh, one of my favorite websites. They do some great work. They're highlighting beautiful, well-made short films. Um, so I would definitely check that out. That is really easy to find. Just search on the internet for Do You Believe in the Devil on Vimeo. Uh, and they actually, with within hours of us recording this uh like within the last few hours they've actually put up their newest short film called bot detector uh and that is a a really clever film about uh let's just say well uh, you know i don't even want to give anything away i don't even want to give anything don't give away the twist i like the twist is there a twist joanna i didn't even know that um anyway I (laughs) i would check it out uh bot detector is the name of that short film it's also the other one is called do you believe in the devil and uh, it's cool that uh, these guys got together and they seem to just be interested in uh, writing screenplays and uh, making movies about stuff they're passionate about, which is uh, always inspiring. Um, so check out their origin story at MikeBandAlexG.com. Uh, good stuff there. And do check out their short films, um, uh, Do You Believe in the Devil and Bot Detector, which you find on Vimeo. They are uh, really... Uh, interesting and entertaining and clever and uh, yeah, they look fantastic. You know, like they look really professional and it's it's a standard that I personally aspire to myself. So, uh, Mike B and AlexG.com, thanks for sponsoring us this week on A Cast of Kings. We also want to read off all the names of people who have sponsored us. Uh, big thanks to Matt Eats, Brian McCabe, Christian White. I don't even know if I can attempt this name. <laughs> Do you want me to try? Maya Sophie Liv, and that's that's how far I'll go. Uh, sorry, I can't read the rest. Maya Sophie Liv Hedgegard Mossberg Jer. Yeah. That's what I'll go with. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Jonathan Schwartz, uh, Randy Dickens II, Niall Dunn, 
Michael Cerrone, James Duvall, and Adam Rosalki, as well as Jenny McCloy and Drew Roller. Thank you guys so much for donating to the Kickstarter for A Cast of Kings. Um, and I also want to thank David L., Josh Johnson from Greenville, South Carolina, or Greenville, I think it's how it's pronounced, uh, Brian Schofield, Derek Peterson, Adam Reynolds, um, J.P. Gagan, Travis Thompson, Stephen McNeil, Richard Cadieu, Devin Fuller, Jamil Payne, Justin Masonette, and Eric Schreiber. Thank you guys so much for, uh, for contributing to A Cast of Kings. Uh, really appreciate it. And you guys have, have helped make the, uh, the podcast possible. You know, Jonah Robinson, you know this is a very inc- monstrously busy time uh, for both of us. And yes. So, um, you know, it's, it really is like the Kickstarter showing the demand and people's willingness to support us that it will help, uh, that, you know, help us do the show in the first place. So we're really grateful to everyone. Let's move on. Uh, a couple of scenes before we can get to the final set piece of the episode. Uh, so there is a, a scene with, as I referred to earlier, uh, Podrick and Brienne, where Brienne is really not happy with Podrick's, I guess, crappy squiring. Uh, he's kind of like uh, an upper class squire, right? He he doesn't need to do the things that uh, a typical rough and tumble squire would need to do. Am yeah, I, but he's am... also just sort of inept, and Tyrion never called him on it. So really, because he's so sweetly loyal. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the fact that, as he refers to in this scene, he saved Tyrion's life, which I right. guess kind of like buys your trump card. Exactly, you know I mean? yeah. Like, if, if you save someone's life, they can't really complain about your service. Right? Yeah, but you're right that Tyrion, I mean, we have seen Tyrion out on the road, but Tyrion is unlikely to go out on the road. So, yes, I guess you could call Pod a posh, a posh squire. There you go. And doesn't know that you need to take the skin off of a rabbit before you put it on the fire. Right. <laughs> uh, and they have this wonderful interaction here uh, where... You know, Brienne develops respect for Pod, and and I love that the way that she shows her respect is by asking him to do something for her. Right. Mm-hmm. So, what did you think of this scene? I really loved it, and this callback to. Uh, I feel like I haven't quite hammered out exactly what they mean by it yet, but we have three three threads. We've got Arya talking about her fencing uh, instructor, Sirio Farrell. And how, you know, as far as she knows, he was killed by Sir Marion Trant. Um, and the Hound sort of mocking Sirio for being killed that way. And then Pod talking about how he killed um, Sir Mandon Moore, the Blackwater. And Brienne sort of being incredulous. How did you come to kill Sir Mandon Moore? Like, that's crazy. Um, and then we'll get to it later, but the way that he t- describes killing Mandamore is exactly the same way that John ended up killing someone at the end of this episode. So I just haven't figured out exactly what uniting thread they're trying to go for there. But All I, deaths that involve someone putting a sword through the back of someone's Sure, head. okay. <laughs> I guess. Although we didn't see that happen to Serio, but I think we, I think that's what they're trying to tell you, Joanna Robinson, is that's how he died. That's the only significance of that parallelism. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm just joking about no, that. No, no, I know way. you are. But if anyone <laughs> does have like a better uh, handle on, on that thread that they were trying to pull through. Okay. Well, that. let me propose, let me propose a couple. Yeah. Let me propose okay. a couple. I mean, I mean, I think that, that one of them is this idea that no matter how powerful you are, no matter how well regarded you are, uh, you like the back of your head is still a really easy way to kill someone. And, and, and I, I know I was being glib earlier, but I, I guess there is something about. Uh, at the end of the day, 
we're all vulnerable in the back of the head. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or we're all vulnerable in some way. Unconvincing? I think it has to do with – I just can't make it fit with John. But I think it has to do with sort of – instead of no matter how great you are, you're vulnerable in the back of the head. It's like no matter how great you are, the smallest thing could topple you. Yeah, sure. That, that, it, people, that we mythologize people. Yeah. But that really everyone is fallible. Everyone is killed. Right. A pod, a pod could take down a man and more. Right. And, you know, Carl Tanner, not to skip too much ahead, but Carl Tanner who dies with a sword through his head in this episode – Spends all of last a long time last episode talking about how great of a fighter he is, right, right? And we see like his knife play, like he's pretty good, but you know, some small like degraded craster wife stabs him in the back, and then John stabs him through the head. So the show as a whole has constantly been about subverting mythologies, right? Yeah, I mean, even like calling uh, uh, calling Jamie Kingslayer, right? Is that right. Yeah, calling Jamie Kingsler, and like when we learn what is behind that, we we don't feel that way about that term anymore, right? Right. And it's all about building these people up, like the great Robert Baratheon. But you see, he's like a terrible human being, and um, and you know, like all all, all these people, Viserys, right, who thinks he's like heir to the throne and stuff, and in fact, he's just a impotent creep and so on uh each one of them like they built up mythologies for themselves or they have mythologies already established and then the show just manages to like completely like knock them down there are right except, call, there, call drogo was killed by like a cut yeah like a cut on his chat there yeah. you go mm-hmm. so, so more, go. more convincing yeah better <laughs> better. better that's my second stab at it but i'm just so, i feel so like speak. john i feel like john is supposed to be our well i guess if you can if you count you know the craster's wife as this smaller force, but John is supposed to be like a traditional hero. So the fact that John slays someone shouldn't be surprising. Um, anyway, well, yeah, well, move on. there are exceptions, right? The, the exceptions to the rule that I described, uh, are what, what make the show all the more remarkable, right? People like Danny, uh, or even Danny, you know, her, her dragons aren't riding high too much anymore either because of what we discussed this episode. So, um, so when there are exceptions, it's, it's remarkable. Anyway, great scene between Podrick and Brienne. Uh, totally is in line with what we know about their characters, and there's a great payoff at the end of it. And you just really have a, a lot of affection for Podrick as a loyal squire, especially someone who I thought we'd never see again. You know, yeah. uh, in the show, it's cool that he's back in a big way. Mm-hmm. Cersei and Oberyn have a conversation uh, about uh, Cersei's daughter, right, and like how she's doing. Cersei really misses her. I guess this is this scene is kind of just to humanize Cersei, right? And and kind of for Cersei to express her strong opinion that Tyrion be found guilty at this trial. Uh, did you see any other functions of what was going on here? Um. Well, I actually think this is the rape reaction that people were looking for. <laughs> um. You know, when people said, "Oh, we'll see in that interaction with Jaime and Cersei how Cersei." Once again, I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but how Cersei. <laughs> you know, feels about that throne room scene. But I think that line where she says everywhere in the world, they, they hurt little girls. Right. I think that is a major, major line of this season and of this series. Interesting. Um, so I think that that's why that's part of why that was there. Yeah. But also, yeah, to, to remind us of Marcella and Dorn, you know, Dorn has, Dorn is like a, a, 
a much better place for women <laughs> in general, uh, you know, and so Oberyn does have a point and, and women do have a right of succession. I don't know if they talked about this in the show, but Marcella actually has the right of succession, a succession according to Dornish law, because girls have equal right to the, to the throne. So it's just an age thing rather than a gender thing. So, um, you but know, just Dor- to remind Dorn you that seen, Dorn is seen as kind of a more like, I guess not as high class place as King's Landing. Would that be would that be accurate to say? I don't know about high class. I think it's liberal. It's like it's like people who look at San Francisco and are like, ah, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, right. like that sort of thing. Dorn is the Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm sorry, Dorn is the San Francisco yeah. of uh, <laughs> of of the Game of Thrones universe. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna say. And King's Landing is New York. Like, sure. what? yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay. So. Uh, where I guess anything goes in New York. So ruthless ambition. Yep. Um, what else? What else happened in this episode? Oh yeah. So then we come to the the final sort of sequence in the movie, uh, in the episode, I should say, where uh, John and uh, J- John finally reaches Craster's Keep, and uh, also they're ab- about to. I, I thought we were going to see another rape take place in this episode, Jana Robinson. There's oh, a, the, Mira. Yeah, yeah. Mira, where Mira is kind of strung up, and they're she, they're about to violate her um, when suddenly uh, John and Locke come in and, and kind of save the day. There, um, a few interesting things happen in this scene. So I, let me just why don't we just list the things that happen, uh, okay. and and then we can talk about whichever one moves us the most. So. Uh, Bran uh, is about to be taken away by Locke. I guess Locke is taking Bran back to the Boltons, right? So they can use him as a hostage or a bargaining chip or something. Right. Uh, And Bran takes control of Hodor and uh, kills Locke while inside Hodor's body. And then Hodor wakes up and he's kind of confused about the fact that he is he literally has blood on his hands yeah he's like hodor yeah like that yeah. uh which is uh, kind of dark if you think about it that yeah brand is using not only killing but using another person's body to kill it's kind of it's kind of a little bit messed a up violation yeah which yeah. based on what you've said i assume is not in the book no no right so there that's a really significant character moment for someone uh so it'll be interesting to see if they play it out further on the show Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so what else? Isn't this the most interesting brand has been since you know a long time? Since the first episode of the show? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, so then uh, Jojen Reed has this vision of the tree that Bran also had, which is where the ra- the three eye raven in- raven is, and that's where Bran is trying to go north of the wall. Am I right about all this? You're right. Yeah, nailed it. People were asking me, or were commenting like what did you think of the tree david like what were your predictions and i guess like i just have very little patience for this kind of stuff that's just my own personal like that's my personality is just 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 show me the goods do you know what i mean like don't drag it out over five years or i mean i guess if you think about it right the first epi- the first scene of the first episode of the show is the white walkers right and it is four years later, and they still haven't like really paid that off to any significant degree, in my opinion. Um, go ahead, Joanna. Am I? You, you disagree? Um, I think you can. Ha- I I just think that you can allow them to exist as a narrative function, as a threat. 
you know, but you said it's not your personality and that's fine. But for me, it's like, it's a looming threat and they show them to us once or twice a season, just to remind us that this is a thing that like winter is coming, you know? Right. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but I guess the brand storyline, we've been seeing it since, I want to say, season two? Um, is that right? Like, Bran and his whole uh, telekinetic powers and his future seeing and so on, right? Like, I just feel like we've been on this path for quite some time, and I don't know when it will pay off, and I don't know if it will pay off, and I'm worried this is going to be some x file style you know, lost style thing where they're dragging this thing out and we're never going to see where it leads. I know I can just tell you with confidence that it's going somewhere concrete and it's going somewhere concrete, uh, soon. Mm, Okay. Well, um, and uh, just to clarify really quickly, we might get in trouble with people if we claim that Bran has telekinesis, which he doesn't. So, okay. Sorry. I'm just, I'm sorry. No, I don't mean to be be pedantic. I just want to head. I've got, no, you're right. You're right. We'll get, we will get emails. Otherwise we'll get emails. Yeah. I believe you. So yeah, Locke dies in this episode, which I thought was interesting because they were, it it just is like, I kind of felt bad that Locke died uh, because they were kind of, he was kind of a great villain, right? Uh, They were kind of setting him up to be great. He has a great look to him. He oh, yeah. uh, chopped off Jamie's arm. He kind of was a huge jerk, and <laughs> to put it lightly, and uh, and for him to die all of a sudden unexpectedly, you know, bravo for the show for just killing someone off like that. But I was kind of bummed out to see that he was gone. I was hoping that there would be some uh, major confrontation between him and John, for instance, or even him and Jamie, right? Because Brienne and uh, Brienne and Jamie have that conversation where she says, you know, don't like she essentially says something along the lines of. Don't whine about it. Just you get like you. Your revenge is to live and then kill them, you know, or something along those lines. And so, yeah. uh, in the back of my mind, I was always ho- hoping that would happen somehow. Uh, but that is no longer a possibility. Instead, he's. I mean, he's, I will. Uh, <laughs> I will admit that I, 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 you know, as much as I sometimes get nervous when they go off book, I will miss him as a character and that actor. I thought he did a great job last episode and, and this episode too when he just slices Bran's upper thigh just like Yeah, just to see if he's the guy he's Yeah, paralyzed. Like I just he is a great character and um you know, but it is interesting to see this whole thing, you know, I I told you that this was and I don't mean that in a smug way, I'm sorry. I don't know what my tone was there. <laughs> I just meant to say that because I already kind of spoiled it for you that this was not going to go anywhere consequential because it's not in the books, right? It was wrapped up really quickly, all right? So they went to Craster's Keep, and what is the net gain from this? The net gain from this is nothing. Bran and Hodor and Jojen and Mira are still heading north. Locke, who's a character who doesn't exist in the book, is dead. Craster and all those mutineers are dead, but they were off scene anyway, and so there's this trumped-up like strategy theory around them, but whatever. So the net game really is that we look at John as a more heroic character and Bran as a more interesting character, and I think that's what they were hoping to achieve, and they did it in two episodes. Right. With this, but that, but that's the net game. What you're saying, quote unquote, net gain to the plot is basically nothing, right? Like. Other than changing our perceptions of these characters, doing some interesting characters. And Bran, you know, like potentially starting to use his powers in in unethical ways. Mm. Uh, But that is a complaint that some people will have. I know they have had an email already. Is that we basically did all this wheel spinning and the plot didn't move at all. 
And Joanna, you know, you're saying that, uh, oh, well, we see John as more heroic and we see Bran as potentially more dangerous or whatever. Interesting is the word I used, yeah. Sure. Um, That will only actually work if, like, that will only have been worth it if those characteristics actually pay off later. Otherwise, it's just like, well, we just did this random stuff to to pass our time um, Mm -hmm. while things happen. So... Not asking you if it's going to pay off later. I'm just saying my opinion is that like, okay, yeah, you're right. That there is no benefit to the plot pretty much. Uh, but to the, to the bigger plots, right, that going on the show. Uh, but possibly the, character work that may or may not Possibly character work that may or may not pay off. Yeah. And if it does pay off, then hey, maybe you, smug book reader, will admit that uh, it was worth it. And if not, then we will both join together in solidarity at... Uh, at ridiculing the show for for <laughs> attempting something interesting, um, so yeah, and and hoping that Bran and John would meet up again. Oh, okay, so that was another thing that I guess, yeah, I mean that I guess I spoiled. Well, no, no, no. I guess it's like, yeah. So to some degree, you kind of spoil it because yeah, like it's inconsequential. But like we knew. Unless they dramatically departed from the book, that there was nothing that was going to affect like the main storylines. But on the one hand, hoping for um, John and Bran or any of the Stark children to ever meet up again is like hoping for Gilligan to get off the island. I feel <laughs> yeah. right. You're like, okay, they're 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 sometimes going to come close to each other. They're sometimes going to be literally. Uh, this is actually the second time that John and Bran have been within like 500 feet of each other and not even known it, right? Or never seen each other right um and that is you know they, they went so they went back to that well again and fine uh it's just it's just a sad joanna robinson i'm just sad about it it's <laughs> really sad i mean especially if you know if you haven't done a rewatch in a while do a rewatch before next season and watch them all as tiny individuals as you know a family a loving family where if Peter Baelish had not had Lysa Aaron murder John Aaron, no one would have ever come to Winterfell and bothered the Starks, yeah. right? And they would have still be there. I mean, John might be at the wall because that's what he wanted to do anyway, but they would still be there, you know? So, But I guess, like, just, just for, you know, I'm hoping so much for them to reunite somehow, just to see each other, have a conversation or something. And then Jojen's like, dude, he's never going to let you, uh, you know, do what you want. He's going to take you back to the wall. Let's get out of here. And I'm like, well, that's just lame. Like, Jojen has a point, though. He, yeah, no, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying it's lame. Like, yeah. I, I just thought I was disappointed that, like, oh, this thing we've been hoping for, and Jojen just dismisses it with, this, you know, this throwaway line of dialogue. Uh, um, there, there are two things I want to note also about Jojen. One, um, we just haven't mentioned it, but he looks not well yeah right? uh, he looks terrible yeah he looks like he's very ill so yeah in the last looks, few episodes yeah he looks not well and then also this the flame thing he did with his hand oh, yeah. uh is not a book thing so you know it's sent people scurrying in all sorts of speculative directions but um he did say it ends with fire i think he said that I think that's the exact quote. Um, so people, some people are wondering, and this is not book spoiler. This is pure speculation. Does that mean the whole series ends in fire? You know, or does it just mean this particular interaction here? Because this interaction did Craster's keep. 
burned down. Right. And it was cool um, that he predicted the death of uh what's his name? Tanner, yeah. yeah. And I I um someone else pointed out that last episode ended with ice with the with the white walkers and this episode ended with fire. So that whole ice and fire motif coming back again. John has this battle with uh Tanner and that I actually thought the so I just have gotten back recently from watching one of the best action scenes ever made, The Raid 2. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I found this action scene, not the Jon Snow and, and Tanner scene, but the scene before it with all the guys to be somewhat lackluster, I guess. I don't know. I just didn't feel like the choreography was that. I also feel people pointed out that like John had this whole strategy, like we'll attack at dead of night. It's a new moon. It'll be dark. It'll be great. And then they all come like running, running in a in, line, yeah. yelling yeah. out of the forest. But that maybe if, if stealth was their plan, they did not execute it very well. Agreed. So. Agreed. So I just thought that that uh, choreography and the way it was shot was pretty uh, lackluster. Um, I, I don't know that Michelle McLaren has ever directed anything like you know, large scale like this. Um, I will say that the scene between John and Tanner, like one on one, was really well done. And the knives, the knives were the great. knives, and uh, the scene where he puts the blade through the back of his head, yeah. uh, like T one thousand style in Terminator Two, yeah, uh, yeah. and the way he takes it out. Uh, and the, how realistic it looks, that is just phenomenal. I and, rewatched, I rewatched that one shot about three or four times because it looks really good. Because you can see <laughs> Burn uh, Gorman, the actor's face moving, you know? Right. So, like, it's not a dummy head. And, well, and you know, you if you go back John and see. fully on the sword, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's a simple uh, practical effects. You know, thing, well, right? actually, if you if you watch the making of Terminator Two, they they do basically a very similar scene where they put a blade to the back of some guy's head. Yeah, and um, I'll just say the way they did it in that movie, it struck me that they could have done it a similar way in this show. I don't know if they did, but uh, that that was very realistic looking in that film, and so it, they could have done it for this as well um, because it's okay. like the, almost the exact same shot, and it's basically a rig that is kind of like behind the guy's head. You know, what right. I mean? it's not through his mouth, so it looks like it's through. It's it's basically how they do like vomiting effects in in movies right, as well. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. where they put like a tube behind the guy's head. Anyway, uh, and so as much as I didn't like like the fight scene with all of them, uh, I did love that one on one fight scene, and also the scene where they burn down Craster's Keep is just absolutely beautiful. Um, so I, I am curious like where all of Craster's wives slash children are going to go because uh, they said they don't want to go to the wall. So what? Is going to happen to them? I'm not really. Well, that sure. was another. That was another thing that I really liked. Um, once again, please go to VanityFair.com and read the post that I wrote about this. But just this idea of these women rejecting these men as their saviors, um, just to sort of address that misogyny point that gets brought up with this show, um, and and the role that that Craster, that one wife, played in in Tanner's death. You know, I just think it's worth worth considering. Um, also we should mention that, that John and ghost reunited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was and, a big deal. And, uh, ghost apparently rips apart rash, which happens off screen. Kind of disappointing. It would have been nice. That's, that's the thing about one of the things about the show that I th- feel like has happened a couple times is, uh, you know, you, you see Rast tormenting a dog, which is like when you know, when you see someone tormenting a dog, like that's when, you know, the show wants you to think he's evil. 
<laughs> and so and so, but we are deprived of the uh, pleasure of his complete mauling. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people have this complaint about Joffrey as well. Like we see this incredibly cruel person. Uh, and we want his death to be brutal and satisfying, but a lot of time, but it's not. It just it just happens. You're not even maybe you don't even see it coming. Uh, so it just is uh, is worth reflecting on why the show makes that decision. I guess um, perhaps to point out the unsatisfactory nature of revenge to begin with. Maybe also um, that's worth noting with Joffrey per our conversation earlier. Like basically, he's taken down by. You know, Lady Olena, who's a, like basically a grandmother, right? Like a grandmother and Necklace and Sir Dantis is what brought down Joffrey Baratheon and Littlefinger scheming. But like still, those are weird, insignificant things to bring down this monster of the series. And something I, you know, we're going a little long today, so maybe we won't talk about it today. But something I, I was thinking about was, you know, we, we contemplated what happened to this show without a Ned Stark. But now I think it's also interesting to consider what happens to this show without a Joffrey Baratheon. Like when you lose the focus for your hate and anger, where does it go? And I don't, you know, once again, we're not going to talk too much about rape, but like all of the, a lot of the anger and bad feelings towards this series. And I'm not saying it's just a corollary to this, but a lot of the anger towards the show has kicked up right when we lost like that person for us to focus our anger on. Does that make any sense? I don't know if that's a, that's a crazy stretch to make, but you're saying that there's this angry energy that the show has that whenever they see Joffrey, they can just hate on him. And then now that he's gone, it's like disperse that, that energy. Yeah, maybe not to say, I mean, like I'm not, I'm not, downplaying anyone's right to be upset at the sexual politics of the show um, at all. I'm just wondering what the absence of a Joffrey Baratheon does to the world of Game of Thrones. I don't understand the point you're making, Joanna. Are you saying that the, as a result, people are choosing to get angry about other things? Like, I think, I think without an easy monster for us to pour our anger into, where does our anger go? Yeah, I guess. Although we could just have no anger. Oh. Um, uh, well, I guess I guess you're are right. Are we not Americans? Yeah, no, you're yeah, that's a good point. Is that people always want to get angry about something? Yeah. I don't know. I don't see it as like I don't see it as a zero That might be a huge stretch. I'm yeah. just, I like it's just a question I'm going to pose right now. And maybe we can get a better perspective a few episodes from now and look back at what the Game of Thrones audience or even our own feelings were pre-Joffrey and post-Joffrey. Well, I guess I would say that what the show is now setting up to be is um, we see Sansa have that look of realization on her face after, you know, Lady Aaron is is embracing her. And she's realizing, man, I am in a worse situation. I am theoretically in a worse situation now than I was before. Right. Uh, and then it cuts to the Briennes, like Brienne and Podrick. And so perhaps... Um, the show is about like, like that's I think one of the next big conflicts is like Baelish and Aaron are now evil characters, and the show is going to be about getting Sansa out of that situation. Um, and you know Baelish is really becoming uh, the villain. He's not the same villain as Joffrey. He's not as flashy, but he is scheming, and um, 
he has done lots of horrible things. So that's my guess. But we'll see if I'm right. But he's a different kind of villain. Oh, yeah. Totally. Villain. Totally different. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't buy your zero-sum game of anger. I, I'm not. Uh, I don't think. I, I don't think it's as black and white as a zero sum game. No, I know, but you're you're saying that like that. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. No, I much. mean, I I think that there is a uh, a clear cut way you could look at what I'm saying, and I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's that clear cut. Okay. I'm just wondering if there's some sort of nebulous correlation, or maybe none at all. I'm just curious. All right. All right. Well, I think that's going to bring us. Oh wait. We forgot to discuss the Arya scene with the Hound. Okay. Uh, and yeah, that we, was. Go ahead. We discussed it a little. We talked about Sirio a little bit. Yeah, and uh, I guess the only thing that I thought was a little weird was she's already said to the Hound on at least one occasion that she's going to kill him. So it seemed like there was supposed to be this shocking moment when she says the Hound, and he's like, "What? Do you know what I mean?" Yeah. Uh... Yeah. I guess he's like, well, I, I knew you said you were going to kill me, Arya, but I thought that was just like a temporary thing. I didn't know I was on your list. I guess that's where the shocking moment's supposed to be. Um, <laughs> yeah, I might have to rewatch and, and watch the Hound's face. Well, I th- just the way the show is, is shot and edited, it's like kind of building up to that moment. She's like, oh, don't worry. I just have one name left. You know? I don't know. We've already heard her say she's going to kill him. So. Right. I'm just like, I don't know that that was as shocking as the showrunners wanted it to be. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, and But were you shocked when she stabbed her little needle into him? Yeah, that was that was pretty shocking, uh, which is why she should have gone for the neck. Don't know, <laughs> don't know why she didn't do that, because that would have... That, well, then we might be looking at a very different show, I guess. That's true. It but is then interesting you, to then see you that... might have to make an, uh, a video about the musical cue that they used <laughs> with it. Although we should announce, we're probably going to try to put together a video of our favorite Game of Thrones well, musical yeah. moments, right? That's right. Someone asked for this by tweeting to a cast of kings. So uh, we'll try to put together a video essay about our favorite music from Game of Thrones. Um, so be on the lookout for that, and that will be shared at uh, the Twitter account, a cast of kings, and at facebook.com slash cast of kings. You can also write into a cast of kings at gmail.com. And uh, anything else about that scene, John? I think otherwise we can wrap it up. No, I think we're good. All right. Thank you guys for listening to A Cast of Kings. J-Rob, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? You can find me every day on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Uh, or you can also listen to me over on Fighting in the War Room podcast. I do a Storm of Spoilers, Game of Thrones spoiler podcast. Find me at DaveChen.net and at Twitter.com slash DaveChensky. That's DaveChensky. You can also find another podcast I host called The Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week. One other thing, J-Rob. Yeah. Is this the first time we've learned that Bran's name is actually short for Brandon? No. Okay, that was earlier. I guess we just haven't heard it said that often. Oh Yeah, it's not often said, but yeah. What a weird abbreviation. <laughs> well, you know, Game of Thrones has those great weird names like Eddard, which is almost Edward, but not. 
et cetera, you know. I just saw this so. tweet. This sweet tweet just passed by that was like, uh, oh, <laughs> the Ruffalo Shuffle just tweeted, did George R. R. Martin really think no one would notice that half of his characters' names are normal mm-hmm. names with a letter or two altered? <laughs> <laughs> We noticed. Not a bad yeah. way to come up with uh, new names. There you go. 